Let's uh, pray uh, for the reading of his word. Uh, God, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts truly be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And thank you so much for these words, this text, uh, these ancient writings uh, that have been passed down through millennia. And may we glean deeply from what it is that you would have to share with us. And I pray in your name. Everybody said... Amen. Just want to give a quick shout out. There is a small group at Westmont College. I showed this picture, I think, before, uh, but just wanted to say hey to all of our Westmont. They have a Spark Junior Sunday morning service that they do in their dormitory. So there they are. And so everybody listening by MP3, just want to say bless you and you are with us and we are with you. Um, We'll have some questions and answers at the end. We're in Exodus chapter 4. Starting in verse 18, Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18, before we get to the reading, just a reminder that each particular week that we come together and we read this word and we study and we discover is really a connection from the story from the very beginning. So if you've joined us for the first time or missed a couple weeks, we do highly encourage you uh, to catch up on some of those teachings in the past as it will give you, once again, the greater context of the full story that is being written through these texts. So I just want to make sure that you take advantage of that. Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you uh, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about the signs he had commanded him to perform. We'll end our reading there. The title of my message is Some Things We Should Know. This is one of those passages that I'm always kind of a little hesitant to read out loud because for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with the Bible or unfamiliar with Christianity or faith or trying to get to know it, passages like this go, what the heck did we just read? And do I really want to put that on a bumper sticker? Um, so I will kill your firstborn son, Exodus you know, 4.22. That's my life verse. Or Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses. I mean, these are not passages through which you find great inspiration from. These are passages where you pause and you just go, what the heck did I just read? And why is this in the Bible? Is this, this isn't a holy text. This is, a te- this is in the book 
that people, millions, billions of people all over the world, considered to be holy and sacred. And we're talking about a Flintstone and, and circumcision and blood. And I did not come to church. Please don't say the word foreskin anymore. I, ah, la, 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 la. You know, this is not why you came to church. So instead of sharing with you what I think um, can often be a wonderfully um, inspirational message, which is going to be hard to do in passages like this. What I'd like to share with you are just some things we should know. As you have tra- traveled with us and journeyed with us with Spark, there's a ton of things going on in the context of the passage that if we understood that context or brought some of that with us, that might help to illuminate some of what we're doing. So you would look at this passage in a traditional way and say this, okay, I kind of get that. I kind of understand But what I'd like to do is shift some things and say, wait a second, there might be a different way to look at this. There might be a different uh, context, a different image that comes to mind once we start to fill in some of those gaps. Um, This is a passage that we're very familiar with. It's, It's very cute. It's very lovable. It's very adorable. But we could make this passage really come alive. That particular thing that we read really come alive if we surround it with some context. So, Get ready to take some notes because it's not necessarily this, like I said, this big inspirational driving theme, although I'll get to that at the end. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to come that will hopefully help explain what's really going on in the text and why we should listen to it and pay attention to it. Are you ready? (laughs) Come on. Are you ready? You, You guys should be excited. First, Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God. Now, this is a passage that is going to be extremely complicated for people who say, uh, uh, who argue about free will and about how God is essentially manipulating Pharaoh. What the heck is going on here? Now, in the Bible, as well as in English, as well as in Spanish, as well as in Hebrew and Greek and all sorts of different languages, there are things called idioms. Idioms are figures of speech, language that we use that may be literal, but actually may refer to something else. Let's give you a little bit of a test run. And especially those of you who speak multiple languages, you already know this. All thumbs. What does that mean? If somebody is all thumbs, it means they are clumsy. Excellent. Uh, Second one, don't hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. It's an English idiom to mean be patient. It's never going to happen. It's probably just don't hold your breath because the thing's just not going to happen. Last one, the birds and the bees. No, no, no. It's probably not going to happen. That's, that's essentially the definition of that. Okay, so you, you kind of get the idea that <laughs> this is what you tell your children. It's probably not going to happen. In fact, it better not happen, right? So these are all idioms that can be taken literally, all thumbs, uh, you, you know, don't hold your breath, birds and bees, but they mean something much deeper. They bring with it meaning and context that for you as a native English speaker would understand this person really isn't saying that this person doesn't have fingers, is really all thumbs. You are saying that they are really clumsy. So when we get to this phrase, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, One way to understand this passage is that you're reading a Hebrew idiom. It is a way of saying something about Pharaoh and about the way in which Pharaoh's heart works, his context, his character, his attitude, his perspective, and that might be exactly what is going on. So there's a couple things that we need to know to help understand what that idiom might mean. The first is this. 
The word harden there is actually the word chazak. Everybody say chazak. Now, chazak is a Hebrew word which means be strong. Does anybody remember Joshua 1, 8, 9? Be strong and courageous. This word right there, be chazak, be very, very strengthened. Does anybody know uh, a name in the Bible, Hezekiah, who strengthened and built the walls of Jerusalem? His name is Hezekiah because he is strengthening and building up. And so what's happening here with Pharaoh, and catch this, is not that Pharaoh's heart is being changed. It is that Pharaoh's heart is being firmed up, strengthened, getting stronger. Another way uh, to say this is that this idiom, this phraseology is not a declaration that Pharaoh was this wonderful, beautiful guy, uh, wonderfully generous, wonderfully kind, uh, very caring and compassionate towards the Hebrews. In fact, it's just the opposite. This is not a change of a nature of Pharaoh's heart. It is actually a change of force. Are you with me? That Pharaoh's heart fundamentally doesn't change because the phrase God hardened it uh, in nature and in kind. It is changing in strength. In other words, what is happening here in this Hebrew idiom is that Pharaoh's heart, when you read through the passage, is already very obstinate, very stubborn towards God, towards Moses, towards the Hebrew people. And the more and more this drama unfolds, Pharaoh's heart becomes even stronger in that same direction. And I hope that helps you understand what's going on in this passage, this famous phrase that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because we get into complicated arguments that, well, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? Maybe, as a Hebrew idiom, it's a description of whatever Pharaoh's heart was, whatever kind, whatever temperament, whatever attitude Pharaoh's heart had. As the drama of Exodus is unfolding, it is just getting stronger, more strong, more built up in the same direction that Pharaoh had originally went. Nothing changed fundamentally about the nature of his heart. What changed is he became more of it. Are you with me? This is going to play in to what happened later with Zipporah and the son. This is really huge. Now, second in that line, in verse 22 and 23, there's this very odd phraseology about Israel's my firstborn son, and if you do not release my firstborn son, then I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Now, we look at that on paper, and we immediately go, what the heck is that all about? We think of firstborn son in very romantic, sentimental terms. Of course, you have a child, you love it, you cherish it. But remember, this is in line with the full Genesis narrative. And again, if you were with us at the very beginning of Genesis, when God creates... Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. He's talking about not just the joy of being able to multiply. It's the entire idea that who I am as your creator in this world is going to explode, is going to spread as you are fruitful and you multiply. You, Adam and Eve, are my image bearers. As you are fruitful and as you are multiplying my image is going out into the rest of the world. So when God says to Israel, you are my firstborn son, 
Yes, he's talking about something romantic. Yes, he's talking about something familial. Yes, he's talking about something sentimental that I love you and I cherish you. But he's also talking about you are my representatives in this world. And as you go out into this world, as I free you from your bondage and your slavery, as you go out into this world, you are taking my name with you. And the point and the purpose of that is so that my name, God's name, Yahweh's name, the great name of God is going to spread throughout the earth. This is the great narrative. If you understand that, I hope I'm not going too fast. Then when God says, and Pharaoh, if you don't let this happen, I will kill your firstborn son. It's as if God is saying, if you will not let my name, my reputation, the very essence of who I am, go forward into this world through my people, then I will not let your name, your reputation, your power, the way you think that you rule in this world, spread out into the world. This is a great battle of power, of deity, of God's. If you don't let my son go, fullness of my name and reputation, I will not let your son go and the fullness of your reputation. This is a great battle of whose name, whose kingdom, whose rule is ultimately going to spread into this world. The idea that your son will die You will not have a chance to multiply, which again is the extension of Genesis. And your line, your lineage, your reputation, your rule and reign will not move forward. So yes, we can come to this passage and be confused. Like, why is God killing? This is such an archaic way, a barbaric, ancient way of thinking about life. Isn't life precious? Doesn't God value life? Yes, but within the context of this narrative and what God is doing, It's the question of who's ultimately going to rule and reign in this world. Who's ultimately going to have the presence of reputation in this world? This is the great battle between Yahweh God and Pharaoh God. Now, add to that one additional piece. In the Jewish context and in the Jewish tradition, when you save a child, it is as if you have saved an entire world. There's the idea and the concept that every single child in this room as they are fruitful and multiply for thousands and thousands of generations, have multiple, multiple children, and one child is not just one child in the Jewish mind, in the Hebrew mind. One child is thousands of people. They have a very long-term view, which is part of the reason why we value children here. Every single little one that you see walking around here, every single child, every single young one, has an entire world within them. And so if we are to salvage, if we are to love and to save little children, it is as if we are saving and loving the entire world. And that's why things like the Holocaust and any tragedy, any death, is, a, is not just the tragedy of the loss of that child. It is the tragedy of the loss of what everything else that could possibly come. Next, the idea of worship and serve. The word there in that particular passage, let my people go so that they may worship me, is actually the word serve. Um, 
we've talked about this before. I'm sure you've heard passages and messages on this before. But the concept and the idea is that that which you worship, you ultimately become in service to. And so the question is, are you going to worship Pharaoh or are you going to worship God? And whose slave, whose servant will you ultimately be? And every single one of us, this is a beautiful, brilliant spiritual truth, Every single one of us, whatever it is that we worship, whatever it is that we value, whatever it is that we bow down to is ultimately going to be our master. And you see that within the context of that word right there. Some things that we should know. Now, let's get to this hard passage. After all of that is set up, we get to this interlude. I mean, if you take a look at the original Hebrew and even read it in the English, it's kind of this little interruption. And Moses is on a way to the night camp, and Zipporah's wife circumcises her son, takes the foreskin, t- oh my gosh, don't say that word ever again. So what the heck is going on here? The wor- reason why I've put an image of a bird up there is because Zipporah, or Tsipuri, means little bird. And this is brilliant, because what is a little bird? But just a nothing. Um, insignificant, not very powerful, doing its little thing the smallest of animals, perhaps some of the most insignificant. And Zipporah, whose name means little bird, which may have the connotation of insignificant, does something radical that saves the Savior. She does something radical as a little bird that saves the one who is ultimately going to save Israel. And so let's get into this passage. First, she comes along, they're on their way, and she grabs a flintstone. And, sorry. Just had to throw that in there. Not that flintstone, this flintstone. And all the men in the room said, Ow. yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not amening that. She grabs a flintstone. And let me share with you a little bit of this context, because in your Bible, the word is Moses, but it's very ambiguous. This is a very perplexing passage. Um, Then on the way to the lodging place, Yahweh met him. We don't know who him is. Might be Moses' son, might be Moses. We think it's Moses because of the context. Sought to look to kill him. Again, it's a very ambiguous kind of phraseology. Zipporah took a flintstone knife, cut off the foreskin of her son, touched, uh, cast it to his feet, his legs. We don't know who his is. Is it God's legs? Is it Moses? Is it the son? And she said, surely a bridegroom of blood to me. What the heck? What is all this? I want you to repeat after me. We don't know. Question, why is God trying to kill Moses? Question, where is this night encampment? Question, why did Moses neglect to circumcise his son in the first place? We have no clue. Did Moses circumcise his firstborn son and was so appalled at the act that he didn't circumcise his second? That's one of the commentaries. We don't know. How did Zipporah, a non-Hebrew, know of the commandment to circumcise? We have no clue. Is this commentary inserted into the text kind of as a textual criticism piece that we had the text and then somebody later on put it in there? Whose feet was touched with the I don't say the word. We have no clue. What does bridegroom of blood mean? Come on, we don't know. Everybody, where did the idea of blood being shed for salvation come from? 
We have no clue. And the passages like this are really complicated and they trip us up because we really have no clue. There are a lot of things that are lost to us. Let me share with you Robert Alto, who's a famous biblical scholar. Uh, listen to what he says about this. This elliptic story is the most enigmatic episode in all of Exodus. It seems unlikely that we will ever resolve the enigmas it poses. Do you know what he's saying? I don't know. I mean, why couldn't he just write? I don't know. I have no clue. So for those of us who've studied the Bible, and for those of us who come to the Bible with these particular questions, let me just say, as you've been at Spark, all these questions are highly legitimate. We should ask these questions, and you never know what new thing archaeologists are going to dig up that will help to highlight and illuminate for us those things. But ultimately, we have no clue there's some things that are lost to us. But here's some things that we should know. Are you with me? There are a lot of things that we don't know. And I hope that that pushes us to ask some brilliant questions. But then there are some things that we should know. He continues on, Robert Alter. But it nevertheless plays a pivotal role in the larger narrative. And it is worth pondering why such a haunting and bewildering story should have been introduced at this juncture. Here's what we do know. It's in there. Here's what we do know. It's part of this larger story. Here's what we do know. Somebody, somewhere, thought it important for whatever it is that's going on in the whole passage. And what I'd like to do is try to share with you what I think, notice not what I know, what I think may be going on in this passage. By the way, if you have other insights, I would love to hear them later. First thing, Long time ago in Genesis chapter 17, we gave a message entitled Private Parts, if you remember that. And Genesis 17 is the famous passage about circumcision. Now, without rehashing the entire talk, what's important to understand is that that ritual, that rite, comes at a very critical juncture in Abraham's life. And there's two main things that we need to understand about the rite of circumcision. I know it's really complicated and a very controversial issue today, which we should have that a debate and conversation. But the first thing is that it is a mark of a covenant. It is a mark of a covenant. It means something deep and significant about the relationship of the circumcised to the deity, to the God. It is a sign of something deep and intimate and relational. Um, Paul is going to use this phraseology later on in the epistles as a significant marker, a significant symbol for that kind of special relationship. And the second thing that we pointed out in that message is that circumcision is obviously a very personal and private part. And that idea that the most personal and private parts of yourself should be given over to God is a fundamental lesson of what circumcision means. That which is hidden, that which is personal, that which is private, is not separate from your whole life engagement with God and with this spiritual journey. It gets complicated today because we are living in an internet world and we have wonderful and amazing conversations that we need to have about the issues of privacy, the issues of all of our data and all of our information being made available. And I know we're in Silicon Valley and many of us have had these conversations and many of us are actually deeply involved with how to take care of some of these issues. What I'd like to share with you is this. While this is true, while we have to take really good care of what's going on, what could possibly happen is that we transfer the idea of privacy 
that we experience here to the scriptures and to the spiritual truths of what this Bible is trying to teach us. In other words, privacy is not a known concept in the Bible. Even though we talk about it all the time here, in the scriptures, it's not a prominent concept. Everything within your life, everything is deeply interconnected. So back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's most personal and private convictions of his heart are not just about what he personally believes. Pharaoh's most personal and private convictions of his heart have huge implications for what happens publicly. Huge implications for what happens in this world. And huge implications for what happens for the values that are expressed in this world, mainly redemption, salvation, and freedom. In the scriptures, the public and the private are the same thing. And so Pharaoh's heart is there. It's talked about. It's mentioned because what happens in your heart from a scriptural perspective, from an ancient perspective, is deeply, deeply connected to what happens publicly. I would suggest that all of us know this. I had a conversation this week with somebody who has a co-worker who's dealing with one of these things, and he will tell you that while pride, greed, resentment, jealousy, rage, insecurity, all these things are personal and private to that particular individual, he was sharing with me that this coworker is one of the most difficult and challenging persons on our team that is preventing our company from moving forward. This is just one example. We could talk about thousands of other examples. That which is private, that which is personal, that which is deep within the core of our hearts in, from a scriptural perspective is deeply intertwined to what happens in public. Are you with me? Does this make sense? So, Winsipura, the bird. And by the way, I wasn't quite sure if you were going to remember this bird, so I thought, let's remember this bird. <laughs> Winsipura takes the Flintstone and begins a ritual that is connected to Genesis 17 and is one of the most deeply personal and private pieces of this puzzle. And as a result of her actions in this deeply personal and private part, the end result in their minds is that Moses' life is spared. And ultimately what that means is that the exodus can happen. Catch this. Pharaoh's personal and private parts of his life are fundamentally going to prevent what's happening for the freedom of the people. Zipporah's actions to Moses is ultimately going to reverse that which was personal and private to Pharaoh. If you understand that what Zipporah is doing is deeply connected to personal and private as well as public, then putting Pharaoh's hardening of the heart and Zipporah's actions with circumcision, they go directly together. Two very personal and private pieces 
two very personal and private actions, two very personal and private ways of thinking about the world, two completely different outcomes. And Zipporah, however she found out about it, however she understood it, however that happened, knew that if Moses neglected to keep this deeply personal and private covenant with God, if he fails at that, however, again, with all those questions that we not, we're really not quite sure, if that fails, the entire nation could be in jeopardy. Listen, this is brilliant. In addition to the idea that this is a little bird who's taking over the great power, the great house of Pharaoh. Someone small, insignificant, seemingly not a major character in this story is doing something very personal and very private that will ultimately bring liberation to the Son of God, that will ultimately bring liberation to the people of Israel. And ultimately, as a result of that, the entire world will be blessed because of what she does. We're talking about it to this day. We're celebrating Passover in a couple weeks to this day. And the biblical narrative is that never would have happened if Zipporah didn't take care of that which was most personal and private to Moses and his family. In the biblical narrative, personal and private and public are the same thing. And I would imagine that many of us do very, very well, including myself, at making sure that what is public is fantastic. But what is private is struggle and all that stuff. And I hide it. And I don't want to work on it as long as I can keep the public wonderful. And according to this passage, as well as many others, that just won't do. Because somewhere, somewhere along the line, that which is private, if I'm not dealing with it, if I'm not allowing my relationship with God to churn my heart, it will make its way to the public sphere. So this is the question for us to take away. This little narrative that's stuck in here in this Exodus passage that seems to not make any sense, I think challenges us to ask the question, what's in our hearts? By the way, not condemnatory. Not like, you need to get your heart straight. It's not a condemnation. It is a recognition that as we together collectively work to take our personal and private lives and our public lives and bring that fully into covenant with God, which is what the sign of circumcision is. It's a sign of covenant with God. You never know what could happen in this world. Great redemption, liberation, freedom, Companies, organizations, families living out the fullness of what God intended. So I hope you don't hear condemnation. What you need to hear is hope. What could happen if we brought those two worlds together and took care of that which is personal and private, redeemed it according to the Lord, and sought to see that live out in this world? You never know what worlds could be created, what worlds could be saved if we took that to heart. And you don't have to be a great king or a great power like Pharaoh. In fact, just the opposite. All you need to be is a little bird. Just a little bird who understands this is important. 
who understands, let's take care of this, who understands, you know, let's attend to this well. You might actually have somebody like that in your life. It might be your child, it might be your spouse, it might be somebody who just comes alongside you and says, let's attend to this well, let's take care of this. Because if we don't take care of this, then marriages suffer, companies suffer, freedom doesn't happen, liberation doesn't happen, the world is not blessed and honored by God's image in the same way that it could be if we don't take care of what's here. Are you with me? Lord, thank you for your word again, and thank you for Zipporah and her actions. And may we do our best to be captivated once again about bringing these two worlds together. And that we would not be so distracted with all the privacy talk in this valley and in this age. That we would forget that that which is private to us is deeply important for what happens in this world. So redeem us, God. Give us once again another hope and a future for what it is that you're going to do in and through us as we continually pursue a relationship with you in all of its complexity, in all of its joy, in all of its challenges. As we do that, may your kingdom, your name, your reputation spread here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in your name.